What I wanted to talk to you about today is a topic that I talk about a lot at different times. I've talked about it in my book. It's something that I come across all the time in my work. And that's the word spiritual bypass, which is using spiritual practices as a substitute for doing psychological work. Basically, the split between psychology and spirituality, which is so rampant in our culture. This issue arises from the dangers of imposing systems of spirituality from other cultures, which in the U.S. anyway is mostly Asian, um, be it Buddhism or yoga, but also pertains to shamanic indigenous practices. So the whole thing with ayahuasca going on right now in our culture. And how these systems, when they're brought into the Western world, where we are psychological animals, and the consequences of that. Um, as these Eastern systems of spirituality have become more common, the split has become deeper and deeper, and there's a whole bunch of crazy behaviors <clears throat> that result from this. As this split goes more out of control, and it's not addressed, it does serious damage to the person who is partaking of it. This is because their egos get a hold of these teachings and then wrap and hide their wounding and insecurities under them. The only thing that can happen out of this behavior is the festering of this wounding and then the crazy behaviors that we see from it. So in a nutshell, we have to realize that we need both psychotherapy and spirituality that these two by themselves can have deep limitations, um, as well as dire consequences. But if they're applied together, it's a powerful medicine that can bring deep healing into our lives and those around us. Just doing psychotherapy without realizing the spiritual spectrum can be limiting, because we cannot expand beyond our limited human experience. Reaching for spirituality as a bandage for our woundings can also be limiting because we can limit our experience and our interaction with this realm around us, which then doesn't really allow us to fully inhabit what we're aiming for. Before we get into some specific examples, I want to give you a quick history of people who started bringing this to our attention. Um, it's definitely my own experience of coming across these teachers. So first off, Alan Watts, um, who was a British-born philosopher and writer, he's the guy who popularized Eastern philosophy in the U.S. and in the West. In 61, he wrote a book called Psychotherapy, East and West. In it, he really tries to show the common ground between Eastern philosophy and Western psychiatry and psychotherapy and what these two systems can learn from each other. It's a pretty in-depth, amazing um, synopsis of all these fields. Um, psychology, theology, philosophy, mythology. Some really great analysis of both Freud and Carl Jung. And then in it, he compares all these um, Eastern methods of liberation. But he specifically goes through Buddhism, Vedanta, Yoga, Taoism, and then these Western methods of psychotherapy. Um, but particularly, again, the systems that were pioneered by Freud and Jung. It's the first serious work that I know of that grapples between these two topics, 
which years and years, actually decades later, um, have materialized into quite a dissociated, separate ways of um, approaching our woundings. Then we move forward a decade, and in 1973, the Tibetan teacher Trogyam Trongpa wrote this book called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. And in it, he discusses how spirituality, as a process of self-improvement, you know, the way we have an impulse to develop and refine our ego, an ego which is essentially empty can be very problematic. And in his words, he said that the problem is that the ego can convert anything to its own use, even spirituality. This is the way that he describes spiritual materialism. Walking the spiritual path properly is a very subtle process. It is not something to jump into naively. There are numerous sidetracks which lead to distorted, ego-centered versions of spirituality. We can deceive ourselves into thinking we're developing spiritually when instead we're strengthening our egocentricity through spiritual techniques. This fundamental distortion may be referred to as spiritual materialism. So here we have an Eastern master who starts warning us about how as Westerners and our egocentric way of being in the world, we can start using these teachings as a way of fortifying the ego, as opposed to softening it. Then we move another decade, and in 1984, uh, the psychologist, psychotherapist John Wellwood, he wrote a book called Awakening the Heart. Here's a guy who was a practicing Buddhist, and he started describing this widespread tendency to use spiritual practices to sidestep um, or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues. So basically, the psychological wounds and what he called unfinished developmental tasks were hidden by the spiritual practice. He talked about how when there's no secure attachment at an early stage of our growth, the lack of love that the child experiences is quite traumatic and how this wounding actually carries into adulthood. And then it has symptoms like not being in the body, not being grounded, self-hatred, chronic insecurity, chronic anxiety, overthinking, um, a lack of basic trust, and a deep sense of uh, inner deficiency, which we then attempt to fill by our spiritual practices. He then further breaks down our behavior into three categories, personal, interpersonal, and suprapersonal. So personal is those of us who do psychological work. We're more interested in the personal, what's going on inside of us, trying to understand that, trying to grapple with that, trying to get down to the root of things. The interpersonal is all about relationships. We do our relationships, our family, marriage, our relationship with other people. These are the things that are the most meaningful in our lives. And then lastly, you have the suprapersonal. And those are those of us who are interested in spiritual practice and meditation, Buddhism, yoga. We tend to go more for suprapersonal realization. 
something that gets us out of the morass of the personal and interpersonal, um, which the Buddhists would call samsara. So this dream state, this realm, we have all these negative terms that we use. And this can actually be, and usually is, unless we've matured, um, a defense mechanism against early childhood wounding. So we try to get out of it. So this is something that I see constantly in my practice. And this is very common for most of us. When we're constantly thinking, our minds are so overactive, we're never in our bodies. So even though we might have a very arduous practice, such as yoga, martial arts, we're never in our bodies. He basically broke up the development of a human being and spirituality into two realms. Growing up, and waking up. It's pretty brilliant. So growing up is basically what it sounds like. It's becoming a mature human person. So your heart's open. You care about those around you. You're very connected. Waking up is also what it sounds like. That you go beyond that. But the important thing that he really pointed out is that we need both. We need to both grow up and we need to wake up. Waking up isn't a replacement for growing up. We are at a time in our culture, this is something that I see a lot of people who are healers or therapists who work in a spiritual community like I do see, which is many people will use the waking up as a way of making up for the growing up. This is something that brings up a lot of anger when I talk to people about how if you're waking up, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're having these growth experiences in your life as a human being. People get very angry at this. These are very separate ways of being in the world and applying ourselves. And the important thing to realize is that we need both. So to be what the Sufis call a real human being, we actually need to both grow up and wake up. Sometimes waking up, the practice of it, can be much easier than growing up. Because waking up, if you already are very heady, if you're already very disciplined, many times discipline, over-discipline, is a reaction to early childhood wounding and feeling out of control. <clears throat> so the whole anal retentive part of us can get a spiritual practice and apply it amazingly. We can do two hours of yoga practice every day. We can do two hours of meditation every day. Out of that energy, we're actually suppressing the part that needs to grow up the part that needs to feel, the part that needs to be angry, the part that needs to grieve. So the growing up part is pretty messy stuff. And there's a reason that we bypass it. So these two terms that I just used, spiritual bypass um, and spiritual materialism, there are ways that the ego bypasses the early childhood wounding as a way of not doing the work and trying to escape this realm to make up for the pain that we're feeling. The only problem is that it doesn't work. Not only doesn't work, it actually robs us of a lot of creativity, of life force, and can lead to problems, including serious health issues down the road, because emotions are real, and they have consequences in our body-mind, and we have to pay the piper at some point. The underlying issue here is that we have to make room for our humanity. For most of us, that's not pleasant business. We try to negate our humanity because of early childhood woundings, because of the fact that 
we weren't loved the way we needed to be loved because of the deep alienation in our culture, in the Western culture. Um, these issues aren't dealt with. So we try to move beyond our psychological and emotional issues by sidestepping them. Again, this is a very dangerous business. So the question we have to ask ourselves when we want to check if this is something that's active in our life is that what we're experiencing in these peak experiences, is that relatable to, relatable to our everyday experience? So if we're having this profound experience after yoga or after meditation, after martial arts, is that something that we experience every day in our lives? For most of us, it's not so because we're so compartmentalized. So we take our mind here, we take our body there, our emotions are over here. These practices many times, if not always really, unless you're a mature person, just thicken those walls between these compartments. Now, this is not only true of the spiritual system. One can also approach psychotherapeutic systems, especially the ones that are very head-centric, as a way of keeping these areas compartmentalized. So let me give you some examples that hopefully will make these things that we're talking about a little bit more clear. I had a person come in in his late 60s last year, had been in deep Freudian analysis for decades, very powerful system, a super heady, highly intellectual person. Um, this person had total intellectual understanding, I mean, unbelievable, of what happened when he was six months old, his mother had stopped breastfeeding him. When he talked to him, it was like reading a textbook. It was genius, the clarity of his mind. The thing that was amazing was that there was zero emotional intelligence in this man. So it was like talking to a textbook. There were no feelings when he was talking about these things. And anytime I would try to approach the feeling part to him, he would have a blank stare at me like, what are you talking about? I understand what's going on. The problem here was that there was intellectual understanding without a link to the emotional body. This is um, pretty common <clears throat> with highly intellectual therapeutic systems. Um, so one of the things that's very common that hopefully you aim for with body-centered treatments like rolfing, like acupuncture, is to connect the mind with the body. Now, the work that's been done in the mind is useful. This is not that this was useless. But until it's connected to the emotional body, um, you're missing an important part of the healing. And what commonly happens in these situations is when you apply the physical part, in this case, the acupuncture, the emotions come rolling up. So the person, in this case, had at first a very violent, angry reaction, and then an incredible softening a weeping, a crying. And what he was touching on was the emotional feelings that were trapped in his body that was connected to the, to the original wounding at six months old and then the abuse that came after that. And once he had the emotional connection, he actually realized that now he needs to go do emotional work to really link up all the psychological work that he had done in his head. It's needless to say that when these emotions come rushing up, it surprises the hell out of the person. Because in their mind, they've done the work, they've understood it, 
they can't quite understand where these emotions are coming from. So it takes a while to connect the head with the body. Just as a side note, this overheadiness, this highly intellectual person, it's a very common thing. It's a very common response to early childhood trauma where we go to our strength, which in this case or in people like this is their mind, and they use that as a weapon, as a tool to suppress the emotions. For somebody else, if they're physically, that's their attribute, they're very strong, they will go into that as a way of holding down the emotions and, you know, be doing triathlons every day and doing six hours of working out every day. So the intellectual piece here is actually an important thing to realize. I come across a lot of people who have deep, deep intellectual understanding of themselves, of the world around them, but they have zero emotional intelligence. This is something that can be very dangerous because we confuse the two. We confuse the fact that we have intellectual understanding with the fact that we can actually apply this to our lives. Intellectual understanding is just one level. Unless that's applied to the physical, emotional part of the body, it stays in the physical. Now let me give you another example, which is a little bit more refined version of that. Refined might not be the right word, but refined in that spiritually it's more refined. But in some ways it's actually more dangerous because it's using spiritual language um, to cover these wounds. So it's common for me to come across people who've had, for lack of a better word, kundalini experiences, where they'll have a moment of peeking through our everyday reality and seeing the absolute, seeing the big picture, seeing the fact that it's all one. But then within a matter of minutes or hours or days, that vision going away. But then they hold on to that and identify with it as if that's their reality. And this is a very common thing that I see with people who partake in hallucinogens, like ayahuasca, where they will be given a vision, they will be shown a vision, and then when they come from that journey back into their bodies, they intellectualize that experience and act as if that's their experience every day. So then they start using the absolute, terms of the absolute, hey, it's all one, we're all one, nothing's born, nothing dies, to address the mundane. So they use spiritual language such as things are all empty, um, this is all samsara, which are definitely true on one level, and they apply it to daily life. But this is just talking the talk, this is just empty talk. Because that truth cannot be applied unless you're living in that space. You cannot use that language to experience your life. What ends up happening is, again, you get this highly intellectualized form of not living under the guise of living and acting as if you live in that space. That's sort of like going, being invited to a billionaire's house for a day and then flying in their fat jet and driving their fat cars and then coming home to your studio apartment and then acting as if you're a billionaire. As insane as that sounds, that's exactly what that experience is like. If you try to do that, you end up getting to trouble really, really quickly. So this is something that's pretty common in our um, tribe right now, both in terms of people who do psychotherapeutic um, drugs and the people who've had these spiritual experiences after some brief awakening or some 
waking up. We have to dig deeper here. So again, the issue here is, why are we using language? Why are we using intellect instead of really feeling what our experience is? And of course, the answer is emotional pain that we don't want to deal with. Now, that kind of behavior can lead to a third example. Um, those of us that are addicted to spiritual highs. And that's an amazingly common form of spiritual bypass. That can be attending workshop after workshop because we do these workshops or spiritual seminars. We feel expanded and we get addicted to that feeling of expanded and we don't like being contracted again. So we can go back to them. This can involve arduous practices, which really push our boundaries and soften our egos. And then we push ourselves to a point of damaging our health, which is something actually I see with um, specific practices that have very intense diets involved or long hours of meditation or not sleeping. These are another way because we're also around like-minded others who are doing the same thing. So it almost becomes like a cult thing. And by cult thing, I just don't mean a group that has some crazy leader. By cult, I mean we surround ourselves by like-minded others. Many times there are very specific um, rigorous diets involved with this, very rigorous spiritual practices involved with this, and we don't step out of that. So we keep the high by using the same language, very cult-oriented, by having weird sleeping patterns, very cult-oriented, and by not stepping out of our group where we feel, where we feel comfortable. One of the things that I keep bringing up and it pushes people's buttons is how having these hallucinogenic experiences are addictive. And people always scream me down, hey, ayahuasca is not addictive. Correct. The medicine might not be addictive and it is not addictive. The experience certainly is addictive. So unless you're rooted in yourself, you're rooted and being able to hold your emotional body, that feeling, that sense of expansion is so delicious, but it's no different than doing heroin. Because what it does is actually disconnects you from your emotional body. So you use it as a way of not connecting. Now, there are definitely people who can take that shamanic path and do wonderful things with it. It's quite rare. Because again, going back to waking up and growing up, you have to actually be a grown-up on an emotional level to be able to approach these practices without using it as a band-aid. And in my experience, these, times, these things many times become band-aids. And again, this really comes from the fact that we don't honor that we're psychological beings. We're hyper-individuated souls in this culture that need to honor that. We can't act as if we're indigenous people or act as if we are a monk that lived 500 years ago or a yogi that did not have interactions with people and lived in a cave. Because remember, when you have those practices, when you live in a cave, when you are in silence all day, you don't really push against your emotional woundings. Emotional woundings come up when you're pushing against other people. And we live in a culture where we push around lots of people. I would put things like addictive behavior towards astrology and psychics under this as well. Astrology can be a very powerful tool to use. Psychics can be very helpful to help us navigate when done appropriately. 
But if we're running after reading our horoscope every day or getting a reading every other week, what's that telling us is that we're so uncomfortable with our everyday life that we need to get high, that we don't really trust ourselves, first of all. So that has to be addressed. We have to learn how to navigate from our internal core, but also how what we're experiencing is so uncomfortable that we need to escape it, supersede it by some outside authority. All these things boil down to the fact that we don't want to be here. We have pain here, there's anger here, there's grief here, there's ugliness here. But these things have to be navigated. As Carl Jung used to say, life itself flows from springs both clear and muddy. We just want the clear springs. But many times the muddy springs is actually where the action is, is where the juice is, is where the healing is. So we have to roll up our sleeves and roll up our pants and get into the muddy waters and see what's there. It's all friend. It's not foe like we've been led to believe. A huge disservice of this whole new agey movement of running after the light, be happy, pursue that, is negating the fact that the only way we're going to have serenity here is that we have to drop into our own lives. And it's only from that place that we can even see if spirituality is important to us. It is something that we need. Many times spirituality and deep understanding can come after we're at peace with ourselves. And then it either falls on our lap or it becomes a part of our life. It's not a badge of honor that we wear running around, which only points to the fact that there's a huge emptiness inside of us. So let me read you a short little email a young woman sent to me who's doing real work. This is someone who is young, so she hasn't really used spirituality yet, but she has woken up very rapidly to a very abusive childhood raised by narcissistic parents. And she writes, I'm just realizing what a self-serving, judgmental, superficial asshole my father is. I feel emotionally constipated about it. Like all of these feelings are backing up, waiting to come out. He's taken up a bunch of my energy. I just keep remembering all the different ways that my father has failed me. It's no fun at all. My stomach is burning with glee. So you read this and you go, poor person. Do you go, that's ugly? Do you go, how amazingly brave? Is it uncomfortable to hear that? Someone saying that about their father? Now, if this woman is having this same email 30 years later, that's sad. She's stuck in that place. She's not moving on. If this woman is doing what she is doing, which is realizing this is really uncomfortable, sitting and feeling these feelings, processing it with her therapist, working through it by feeling it. And here's the important thing about these emotions. We can repress them. This is the spiritual bypass we're talking about. We can act them out. That would be her writing this 30 years from now and just holding on to this pain, just like that first man that I gave you the example of who in his late 60s, um, almost one foot in the grave, is still stuck on what happened at six months old. Or she can feel them, which is what she's doing. So once she feels these feelings, once she comes up with it, come, once these feelings come up and she deals with them, from that place... 
she can actually find a center in herself. She can start choosing different relationships that don't mimic what happened to her as a child. She can have a deeper relationship with herself. And then she can have a real relationship with her father. And that real relationship might not look like some sitcom from the 50s. Um, and it won't look like the soap opera that it has been. It'll either be a self-responsible relationship with a narcissist with as little involvement as possible. But the power will be back in her court. She won't be at the mercy of these forces. And she certainly will not be using spirituality or other things to replace the wounding and covering it. And instead, she's going to be doing the work that she needs to be doing, which is exactly what she's doing. So I want to really reiterate this point. The reason we do the spiritual bypass and the whole idea of spiritual materialism is because of this deep wounding and self-hatred that we have. So the arrogance that you see in the spiritual community, that people look down at you because you're not doing their practice, it actually comes from a deep self-hatred because we haven't been loved the way we needed to be loved. And this is not a projection on our parents. Some parents do the best they can. Some are just checked out. We live in a highly alienated culture. Our parents are a product of that as much as we're a product of that. Our job is to break through as much as we can, and whether we have children or, or we do not have children, that we don't pass that on. We don't pass that on to the people around us, to the animals around us, to the way we treat the culture and our so-called enemies. So this part of the path of feeling these emotions, like this young woman doing, it's very painful. It is not pleasant. But the only way to come through the other side is to feel them. So again, we can repress them, most of us. We can act them out, some of us, without processing them. Or we can feel them, which is the only way that we can work through them. So I invite you to take an honest inventory, to slow down. Slow down even five minutes a day and feel. Don't think about these things, but take an honest inventory. Where are you in your life? What parts of your childhood, if any, what woundings from that time are still active in your life that you're pushing against? Are you overheady? Are you running around all the time? Do you have a hard time saying no? Do you repress your emotions? Are you trying to be a good person instead of a real person? If you have a spiritual practice, how is it serving you? There's no right or wrong here. The important thing here is that when death comes knocking on our door, we've been true to ourselves. In my experience of 30 years of being a clinician around dying people, the people who are true to themselves, whether they're spiritual or not, whether they use the word God or not, they've lived life well. And I come across many spiritual people, quote-unquote, who weren't true to themselves. And in their dying moments, there's a deep grief, the sense of betray, betrayal of themselves towards themselves. And this is not a judgment. It's just sad and it's painful. And remember, all these things are about us being happy. Not in some mindless, consumptive way that this culture constantly puts in front of us. That happiness is right around the next acquisition. 
whether that acquisition is material objects or love or a person, none of those things are true. None of those things are true. It's here in this moment in exactly as how we are. That doesn't mean there's not work to be done. There's actually a tremendous amount of work to be able to feel that. So I invite you to start that journey if you're not already started. To have the courage to step into that. To put aside things that don't serve you, even though they might bring you kudos externally. To have the courage to disinvite people and energies from your life that keep you asleep. And to invite in and encourage people, situations, and practices that do make you feel more alive. Till next time.